0: It's Dave. No new episode this week, but we are replaying one of our favorites from the Commute Archives. This is episode 56, and it's one of our most listened to episodes ever. In this episode, we cover what it takes to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, author Stephen King's own real-life suspense story, and how movies get their ratings. Three good ones that we think you'll love for the first time or enjoy hearing again. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Commute.
1: You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations. You'll be smarter when you get there.
0: What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there.
1: On this edition of Commute. We all dream of being the best in the world at something, but what if you could document it? For 60 years, the Guinness Book of World Records has been doing just that. But just how do you get your name into the famous book? From evil clowns to
0: here's Johnny, Stephen King's novels have fueled many a nightmare. So what about the time he had to endure
1: his own? When you go see a movie, there are many factors that affect your decision. What time should you go? Which theater? Should you get the large popcorn? But what about what is the movie rated? We explore the secret underground of how they get that rating.
0: The play is a medium popcorn add butter. Bottle of water.
1: I don't get any liquids at all. Mm-hmm. I have to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. It's just no good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's your own problem.
0: All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. You always make fun of me for being too small of a popcorn, but my stomach never hurts from eating too much popcorn.
1: Yeah, but y- there's always this disappointment on your face because you always eat it all before the movie starts. I do love every single time you've ever been to 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 the movies during the preview. (laughs) (laughs) And then you sit there and you pout because you want it for the opening scene. (laughs)
0: I always get a ton of napkins too because it's just so greasy. (laughs) Oh, it's so good.
1: So Dave, when we're talking Guinness Book of World Records, do you have any history with that? Like, did you ever try to break a world record yourself or did you ever get like really interested in checking out records other people have broken?
0: Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, I was obsessed with sports, especially baseball and basketball. And so a buddy of mine and I would just play basketball every single day. We got really interested in the Guinness World Record for free throws. So we thought that maybe we could set the world record for free throws. Well, when we got around to looking at what that record was that we had to break we discovered it was 2,750 free throws. <laughs> and so we immediately gave up. Because I think we were at like maybe 12 at that point.
1: Yeah. Well, I um, remember walking into the Scholastic Book Fair sometime in elementary school and I had like $10 in my pocket, which, you know, that's a high I've been chasing my entire life ever since, like just spending money at the Scholastic Book yeah, Fair. But uh-huh. I did buy a Guinness Book of World Records and I was, like, really into it. Like, I feel like I almost read it cover to cover. There was one kid in my class uh, on this one page. I told him, I was like, yeah, I don't really like this page because there was a guy, I think it was, like, most piercings on his face or something. It was, like, really gross. And there was a picture, and the kid took the book, and he creased it, like, real hard. So every time I had the book, it immediately opened to that page.
0: Now, it says here, the most consecutive free throws made while alternating
1: hands is only 40. Okay. Uh, I think I can do I that. I mean, I don't... I don't think you can do that. (laughs) It doesn't sound that hard. Well, Dave, the first edition of the Guinness Book of World Records was actually published in 1955. And ever since, the various editions have added record after record to the point that now there are over 40,000 records held in the Guinness Book of World Records. The idea that you can be documented best in the world at something, it has a lot of staying power. And people annually try to make it into the book, either for setting a brand new world record, breaking an existing one, or setting some sort of group world record with others. So Dave, there actually are a lot of organizations that track world records, believe it or not, but Guinness is definitely the most recognizable, and since it's been published annually for 60 years, it actually holds its own record for the best-selling copyrighted book in history. Mass participation records, such as The Largest Gathering of People Dressed as Smurfs and The Most People at Once, Making giant bubbles, which both really exist, by the way. Don't print the names of the sometimes hundreds of participants, but you can order a certificate of participation if you can prove that you participated. Now, to actually break through and get your record approved, there are a lot of rules that you have to follow, and you have to follow them very closely in order to get approved. Guinness may require video evidence, written witness statements, signed statements, or an actual steward to come and view the event. So let's start at the beginning, Dave. Let's say you want to break a record. The first thing you need to do is apply to Guinness. You explain the record you wish to break, and you have to get their stamp of approval before anything happens. You cannot retroactively break records. So for instance, you can't film yourself breaking a record and then submit it later for approval. The event has to take place after approval. And Dave, sometimes it can take up to 12 weeks to get your record approved by Guinness, but you can pay more for expedited services. Now, not everything gets approved here either. For example, if you're trying to do something a certain amount of times within a time frame, Guinness will actually only measure it in one minute, three minute or one hour intervals. Guinness also has a long list of commonly rejected categories of records on their website, such as records dealing with alcohol consumption, records that could hurt the environment, such as releasing a ton of balloons or something like that. Heaviest Pets has actually been outlawed too, gaming, high scores, (laughs) athletic records outside of the highest levels of achievement, and many, many others. But within what can get approved, they'll consider basically everything else, such as most socks put on in one minute, which, by the way, is 47, broken by a man in Slovakia. Now, if you're trying to set a new record, you'll need to at least pay $5 for consideration, Breaking an existing record does not have a fee, but the level of speed and service you want to pay for here has tiers. So, for example, Dave, the best method is to invite an adjudicator from Guinness to guide you through the process, attend your event, and then submit your evidence. It's definitely the quickest and most efficient way, but it's also the most expensive. Costs vary, but we're talking like thousands of dollars. Now, sometimes if your record is interesting enough, Guinness will send people out to document the attempt for free. You know, Remember, Guinness has to sell a book here, and they need it packed with interesting photos from interesting events and records. Now, if you are approved... The documentation of the event is even more complicated. There are strict guidelines on recording, on video format, on witness statements, and on cover letters that, yes, is something that has to be included as well. But it has to be this way, though, right? Guinness prides itself on making every record airtight. The standard here has to be high for approval. In fact, Dave Guinness gets about 50,000 inquiries a year from potential record breakers, so they have to be choosy. Now, if you manage to pull it off, you get approved, you document the attempt, you upload all the evidence, and your evidence is approved, you're in. And then to top it all off, you can pay $26 plus shipping for a certificate, but your name will live on forever on the website, at least until somebody comes along and breaks your record. So when are you going to try the free throw record, and can we document it?
0: Well, yeah, but I'll tell you somebody who I'm coming for is Kip Watson. So Kip Watson currently holds the consecutive free throws from a wheelchair. Now that's 12 Easy? Well,
1: Oh, that's easy. Well, I will personally film you trying, and when you airball the first attempt, we'll post it for the world to see. I'm coming for you, kid. (laughs) Jay, who is the most famous person that you have ever met? Uh, I've definitely seen famous people, but as far as met... Uh, I'm probably going to have to go with Tony Dungy. I got to meet him for like a few minutes at an event. He's a broadcaster, Uh former head coach in the NFL. Well, Jay, as
0: you very well know, I like to, um, I won't say exaggerate, but I like to maybe view my interactions with famous people more as the beginning of a friendship and less like a random crossing of paths. So with that understanding as our guide, my list of famous friends and famous people that I've met is very impressive, if I do say so myself, okay? So let this sink in. Tiger Woods, Barack Obama, Bill and Hillary Clinton, George W. Bush, a lot of presidents, Troy Aikman, NFL quarterback, Jerry West, David Robinson, Luke Wilson, Owen Wilson, Erica Christensen, and my personal favorite, On the Dave Traub Friend Wall of Fame, author Stephen
1: King. So some of these people, though, like you've just seen, like I think you saw Luke Wilson on a beach. Like you didn't talk to him. Well... And then like you saw Troy Aikman when you were like six. Define talk to him.
0: I talked, he was close... Regardless of, uh, we'll, we'll debate how close of friends I am with these people later. But are you a Stephen King fan?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, totally. I've read a lot of Stephen King books, some of my okay. favorite books well, ever were written yeah. by Even Stephen though King.
0: I won't claim to have read all of King's work, big shout out to the incredible movie adaptions of some of his novels, you can't argue his status. He is a legendary writer of horror and suspense novels, writing classics like. It, the Green Mile, Carrie, Misery, The Shining, the list goes on and on. But Jay, today on the show, we aren't going to talk about my good friend Stephen King, the author. No, today we're going to discuss Stephen King, the victim. This is a story so interesting, it's almost like it was written by King himself. Jay, in 1999, Stephen King was the victim of a car accident. On that fateful day, King was out for a walk near his home when a distracted driver slammed into him, hitting him so hard that it flipped Stephen King over the driver's van and left him crumpled up and in critical condition. The driver, a guy by the name of Brian Smith, became instantly famous as, well, the guy who nearly killed Stephen King. So whatever happened to Brian Smith? And did Stephen King really buy Smith's van after the crash? The very vehicle that nearly killed him? Like I said, Jay, this story has classic King all over it. For starters, yes, he did buy the van that almost killed him. Stephen King purchased the vehicle for $1,500 after the crash, mainly out of fear that a crazed fan would buy it and try to finish the job. Jay, these are the kinds of things that people don't tell you about fame. (laughs) One minute you're getting paid to shoot commercials, the next people love you so much they're trying to kill you. King, obviously being in a uh, fairly sour mood after the accident, reportedly originally had plans to raise money for charity by allowing his fans to pay a fee for the right to hit the van with a baseball bat. (laughs) His wife ultimately convinced (laughs) him, though, that that wasn't a great idea, and he abandoned it. Next, out of all the 365 options, would you believe that Smith died on Stephen King's birthday a year after the accident on September 21st, 2000. Smith and King also shared a middle name, and not a run-of-the-mill, supernormal middle name like Brian or Andrew, Edwin. Both men had the same middle name, Edwin. And speaking of being connected, how about this? Well, King is famous for writing horror, There are few things scarier than Smith's driving record. Aside from a DUI and an account of, uh, quote, passing out on his lawn after running several cars off of the road, Smith had 11 driving convictions between 1989 and 1998 and had his driver's license revoked and then restored three times in just 1998. (laughs) Always looking for inspiration, the accident has actually appeared in various ways in multiple Stephen King works since. Perhaps none more prominent, though, than King's final novel in his famed Dark Tower series. In Dark Tower, King created a character named, yep, you guessed it, Brian Smith, who is driving and nearly strikes another character named, yep. Stephen King. (laughs) In the novel, though, the Stephen King character is pushed to safety by another character, but the conversations that happen afterward are based on the real exchange between King and Smith after the original accident while they awaited medical assistance. And finally, Jay, for years and years after the accident, Stephen King continued to wear the lenses from the glasses that he had on when he was hit by the car. The glasses had obviously flown off of his head when he was hit, but they, strangely enough, landed in the front seat of Smith's van. While the frames were bent and broken, the lenses were somehow in pristine condition. King discussed the decision to keep wearing the lenses years later in his book On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft, saying, I guess that I wanted to say that things we ordinarily see as quite fragile aren't necessarily that fragile. It's true of those glasses, and it's true of me. I got bent, I got busted around a lot, but I'm
1: still here. This is all just a little too meta for me to follow. (laughs) Like, it's a little too on the nose that he wrote the experience of the crash into a book with his name. (laughs) Like, at least make your name like Stephen Bing or something. So Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of strike me as a guy who probably tried to see PG-13 movies before you were 13 and probably tried to see rated R movies without a parent. Is that on the nose?
0: You would be correct, Uh, but... The thing is, as we learned last week on Commute, I'm easily scared with movies. So (laughs) there was a reason, probably, that I wasn't allowed to watch these movies.
1: Well, Dave, although most of us are familiar with the five categories of movie ratings assigned by the Motion Picture Association of America, which are G, PG, PG PG-13, R, and the mysterious NC-17, Most of us don't know really how these ratings come to be and how the nuances of movie ratings are navigated and by who.
0: I'll tell you what, NC-17s are a subculture, man. It's a strange world if you ever look those movies up. Have you ever seen one? I've never watched one, but a friend of mine and I got really interested in them years ago, and so we just looked them up and read the plots That's enough. Just reading the plots. If you really want to freak yourself out, there's a strange NC-17 movie called Pink Flamingos. Just go read that plot. Actually, don't go read that plot. Just take my (laughs) word for
1: it. You didn't even have to see the movie, and you got messed up (laughs) by it. No, I can visualize it in my head. Oh, Well, Dave, the people who actually make this call are members of a highly secret organization called the Classification and Ratings Administration, or CARA, which actually was founded back in 1922. And it was formed to act on behalf of the film industry to essentially eliminate the need for government censorship of films. So up until 1968, filmmakers sort of followed a code of ethics called the Hays Code to determine what material could and could not be on the screen. And it wasn't until 1968 that a former advisor of President Johnson, who had become the MPAA chairman named Jack Valenti, put the system into place that we all know today. So how does one get to be a part of CARA? Well, it's complicated because of the strict secrecy surrounding the organization. What we do know is that there is an administrative director, there are senior voters, and there are raters who make most of the decisions on the final rating of a film. Voters must have children between the ages of 5 and 15 when they start their term of 7 years, and they cannot in any way be connected to the film industry. At the end of their 7-year term, or once all their children cross the age of 21, whichever comes first, they are removed from their position and replaced. And the identity of the Raiders is kept completely secret and very, very few have ever spoken publicly about the experience. A secret society. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the Masons. I love it. So how is Kara funded? Well, all production companies actually have to pay fees to have their films reviewed that fund the organization. And outside of the connection to the MPAA, the organization essentially operates with little to no oversight. What you can't deny, though, is that there is power in the rating. Generally speaking, films with lower ratings tend to rake in much more money than films that don't. In fact, many theaters don't even show NC-17 movies at all. Although the lines are blurry at times, it's pretty clear that there are certain artistic choices that can trip the rating, though. Quentin Tarantino, for example, famously took the bloodiest scenes of the movie Kill Bill and made them in black and white to avoid splatters of red blood and get around a proposed NC-17 rating for the film. Language rules seem to be mostly consistent, uh, with any expletive, any use of drugs, and non-sexually oriented nudity that immediately moves a film to PG-13. And although a PG-13 film can graduate to an R film with more than one use of a harsher expletive, the rating rules state that the board can choose to move a film from PG-13 to R depending on how the word is used. Like, for example, if it's used in a sexually suggestive way, it can push the film to R. Producers do have the option to re-edit and resubmit a film for review if they're not happy with the final rating, or they can appeal the decision to an appeals board, which hears both sides of the case and decides the rating of the film. Now, although a filmmaker does not necessarily have to submit their film to CARA for review, if they don't and the film carries an unrated designation, it can be an uphill climb to get theaters around the country to show the movie. Now, in today's day and age, though, as streaming platforms grow in power in our entertainment culture, and since films and shows on streaming platforms don't require the Kara rating, there is a little bit more flexibility there to make the movie you want exactly the way you want to if you can get a streaming platform to carry the project. The CARA rating actually has no legal affiliation with the government either. It's all part of the film industry and is not run by the Federal Communications Commission. There is a similar process for video game ratings, which is handled by the Entertainment Software Rating Board, and music ratings, which are handled by individual labels. But questions here on the future definitely exist on just the future of ratings with the rise of streaming, but it's pretty undeniable that this is a recognizable staple of our culture that'll probably be here for years to come.
0: Yeah, and I feel like things have changed a ton. Like, there are a couple 90s movies. They have multiple F-words and some nudity, and they were PG.
1: Yeah, I think it they probably just got a little bit more refined. You can actually find a like a PDF on the internet that they use to kind of judge and it's really confusing and it's really long uh, and so it seems like after reading some pieces of it to me what I took out of it is that it just centers a lot on conversation like they just watch the movie and they just kind of are like eh, PG-13 yeah PG-13 and then they just kind of do it so there's not really like a checklist or anything if that makes sense.
0: Oh, I, I looked up the list of like top NC-17 movies <laughs> like just uh, like the descriptions of them, they're either like really violent or really sexually explicit. So I I need to go take a You can get away
1: with a lot of violence in a rated R movie too. So like to go from R to NC-17 for violence, like you are doing some gruesome stuff. I feel like I'm on some
0: kind of like government watch list now, just for even Googling. (laughs) And that's it. Jay, I think we can rate this episode of Commute. G for good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. And hey, check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, CommuteThePodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons, for Jay Sisson. I'm Dave Tropp. We'll see you next week. Maybe PG, pretty. Good.
1: <laughs> I was just so caught off guard. I was like, That's what? <laughs>